Morning. I'm Lucas. Um, I am a part of our teaching team here at Two Rivers. We are uh, three weeks into our Advent time, and we're looking at the theme of joy this morning. We're going to try to draw that out through the stories of the the Magi and the shepherds, um, familiar characters in the Christmas story. When I, was in, when I was in teacher school, somewhere along the line, I latched onto the phrase that good teaching always starts with a question. Um, but I have a lot to say about the shepherds and the magi, and I'm going to ask a lot of questions over the course of the morning. So instead of starting with a question, I'm still going to start with a, like, a, like a query of sorts, but it'll be in the form of a game, all right? So we're going to play, play a little game. The game is simple enough. It's called Two Truths and a Lie, if you've never played this game before. Um, who's played this game before? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I like to see. So, um, three statements on the screen. Two of them are true. One of them is not true. And your job is to correctly identify them. Simple enough, right? And I realized when I did this in first service that I I did A, B, and C. I really should have done one, two, and three. So just pretend that it says one, two, and three, not A, B, and C. Think about it for a second. Magi were three kings from east of Israel. Shepherds and the Magi never worshipped Jesus together, and the Magi were never told to find a baby lying in a manger. Again, two of those are true. One of those is not true. Show me one, two, three. Which one do you think is not true? Oh, a C. You're actually doing the C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could do like a one, two, three. In the first service, I saw every, like there was everything. There was lots of ones, twos, and threes. Everybody had a thought in first service. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The Magi were three kings from east of Israel. Based on our, uh, from what we can see in the biblical account, you can't say that that's true. We don't know that there were three of them to start. We only assume that there were three because they brought three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But it doesn't say how many of them there were. We just assumed there was three because they brought three gifts. Um, and we will also talk a little bit about the three kings idea. Um, three king, we three kings, great song. Maybe not accurate. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. The shepherds and the magi never worshiped Jesus together. True. And you're thinking, wait a minute, what about the nativity? I'm sorry. It's, Yeah. Magi came, the Magi came later, scholars think probably, maybe even a couple months after Jesus was born. Um, they were not there together on the same night. The Magi were never told to find a baby lying in a manger. Um, as far as we can tell from the biblical account, the Magi weren't really told anything. They just followed a star and figured it out. The shepherds were told to find a baby lying in a manger. So anyways, I knew that this morning in bringing out these stories, I was going to like kind of debunk the nativity a little bit, so I was like, I need to present this softly, right? So I figured, what, what better way to do that than through a game? We're going to uh, use three questions to guide us. Who are the shepherds? Who are the magi? And what's the point? What's the point of these stories? Why are we talking about them? Why are they included in the Christmas story? So we'll start with the shepherds. Who were the shepherds? That's where we'll be first. The story of the shepherds is in Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can, you can jump to it. We'll, we'll be looking at a couple different places in it. Um, it's a familiar story. Shepherds living in, out in the fields. 
the angels come and give them this big announcement. They tell them to go find a, a baby lying in a manger, and they do so. Um, it's, a, it's a familiar story. But I want to point out a couple of things about the story, and the shepherds in particular, that I think are, are powerful and maybe, maybe unfamiliar. We might award or carry like a positive connotation when we think about shepherds, like that word. Jesus describes himself as a shepherd, the good shepherd. Um, you know, pastors, we consider pastors like a shepherd. Um, so we might carry a positive connotation with that. But at the time of this writing, the profession of a shepherd was certainly not considered to be uh, that way. Um, they are a, they did not carry high esteem as a profession and a people. They are lowly, marginalized, thought of as dirty, disrespected. Um, they are a near social bottom class of people. These are who shepherds are in the time of, in the time of Jesus' birth. So much so, this is, this is remarkable, so much so that shepherds were not allowed, they didn't have the right to give testimony in a court of law, even if they're eyewitnesses. That's how low and lowly esteemed these people are during this time. And yet, it's to these people that God chooses to announce the coming of his son. They're the first to hear about it. They get told first. And not only that, they're the first to see him. They're the first to go and see Christ in flesh. They're the first to see him. And what's more remarkable is that after they see him, later in the, in the story, if you remember the story, they go and tell a bunch of people. And it says that everybody was amazed. And consider, when we think about that, that these are men that cannot testify in court. And they are the first to testify of the coming of Christ. How baffling is that? It's remarkable. It's very strange. It's very peculiar. And what's more, this is, this is the culmination of thousands of years of waiting, watching, hoping for the coming of, of God's anointed one, the Messiah. And at the time of this happening, there had been 400 years of silence between Malachi's prophecy and this story. 400 years of silence, in addition to right much longer time of waiting for the Messiah. So when you consider that, it makes it all the more of a, of a head-scratcher, really, why God chose to do it this way. Because the angels don't come and sing to kings. Like, they don't give their triumphal announcement to royalty. They don't, they don't go to the religious elite. They don't even grab the larger public ear. God chooses to make his triumphal announcement of the birth of his son to a group of dirty, lowly, disrespected men out in the, some fields in the middle of the night with no one else around. And those are the ones that are the first to proclaim. And they don't even have that right to do so. It's, it's remarkable. 
My question is, why does God do it like that? Why does he choose to begin the story like this? We're going to think about that question, but before we, before we do that, uh, I just want to point out that this, this reality, this story of the shepherds, this is a clear reason to conclude that this cannot be fiction. Can't be. And here's why. If Luke is writing a book or an account and it's fabricated, assume it's fabricated, and he's hoping to convince people that it's true, particularly the people in his time, right? He didn't get very far before he really messed it up. Because again, these are guys that don't have the right to testify about anything. And much more than that, they're a social bottom class. And yet these are the ones to receive the triumphal announcement. Like, it's, it doesn't make sense. Nobody would have believed this. Which would lead you to think, well, then it must just be what actually happened. Again, I've said it a couple times, but I want to say it again because it's, it's fascinating. The first to testify about Jesus' birth, the coming of God in the flesh, were men without the right to testify. And that makes me think, we're talking about Jesus' birth right now. It makes me think of his resurrection and what followed immediately after his resurrection. Who was the first to testify about the resurrected Jesus? Mary Magdalene. A woman without the right to testify in court. At his birth and his resurrection. It's, it's fascinating. It's astonishing. And why does he do it like this? They sang that song. He could have come in power. He could have come with fire. He could have brought the nations to their knees like that. And he chose to do it like this. Why? I think that um, there's two main things to point out about the shepherds in thinking about that question. Ones, that, ones we've already talked about, and that they are a lowly, um, lowly esteemed group of people. Okay, I think that that's important, and we'll, we'll, we'll go into that a little bit more in a few moments. But another thing that I want to point out about the shepherds, um, so these guys watch the flocks in the in fields outside of Bethlehem. And it was widely known that the flocks in the fields in Bethlehem were used for temple sacrifice. So these are the lambs that would eventually be led to the slaughter to, to atone for the sins of the people. These shepherds are caring for those sheep. So then it would really only follow that these are the guys that get to be the first ones to see the Lamb of God who would one day also be led to the slaughter on their behalf. There's more to the question why God does it like this. Um, and I think it's going to be helpful if we apply that to the Magi as well and examine them and ask the same question for them. So we're going to leave the shepherds, okay? Um, so consider they are lowly esteemed, Without rights to testify, a marginalized people, disrespected, and God comes to them first. Why does he do that? Well, let's, let's talk about the Magi, and I think that that might um, help to expand our answer to why God would do this. So the shepherds are in Luke 2, the Magi are in Matthew 2, if you're following along in your Bible. Um, 
Matthew 2 begins after Jesus has been born, which again is why we conclude that the Magi and the shepherds were not together on the night of Jesus' birth. Luke is very explicit in saying that the the shepherds were there when it happened. Um, The Magi's account says that after Jesus was born, sometime later, it says later they arrive at a house that Jesus was in, not a manger, right? So that's why we conclude that they weren't together. Um, In Matthew 2, he starts by saying, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. I'm reading the NIV. Some translations, like the ESV includes this, includes this word behold in that statement. It says, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And that's important. That's important. I don't don't want us to miss this. I think that this, this is Matthew's way of saying, hey, are you, are you hearing this part? Like, are you listening to this part that I'm about to say? Behold, magi from the east are coming to Jerusalem to find Jesus. And you might ask, well, why, why is that a big deal? Well, let me tell you, it's because the coming of these men was Utterly, utterly surprising. There are reasons for this. The Magi, like I said, the Magi, as far as we can tell, are not three kings. Um, The Magi, title Magi, referred to pagan astrologers, dream interpreters, sorcerers, divinators, like literally wizards from the east, the land of Babylon and Persia. Ergo, not Jewish, <laughs> not Israelites, very different. different, different people. If you're familiar with, um, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel and the account of Daniel and his friends during the exile to Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king in Babylon, has all these dreams, and eventually Daniel interprets them for him. Um, But before Daniel does that, Nebuchadnezzar goes and asks some other people to interpret his dreams. Those were the magi. So we're talking about like pagan, pagan idol worshiping type people. So when we're told that magi from the east are coming, the picture we might get, because, you know, we three kings, three wise men, nativity. The picture we might get is like some mysterious, illustrious men of wisdom that are coming from an unknown land to be a part of the, be a part of the Christmas story. Um, and that's not really who they were. We are talking about pagan wizards. <laughs> and it sounds utterly absurd. And you might be sitting there thinking like, wait, a, I thought this was Christmas, man. Like, come on. I thought we were talking about the nativity here. And you're telling me that, like, Gandalf and Dumbledore are showing up here, and they're part of the story? And I agree, it's crazy. It sounds altogether ridiculous. But just like the story of the shepherds, that's reason to believe that it's not fiction. So, yes, behold. Don't miss this. This is crazy. That these guys, these people, 
are coming to Jerusalem to worship Jesus. Jewish people would have been deeply disturbed to be in the presence of these men. Because they practiced things that were strictly condemned in Old Covenant law. And more than that, there's a history between these people. The eastern lands and the Israelites. The Jews were oppressed for years in Babylon. And here they come. Them too. God had, God had sent Jesus to be the Savior for the Jews, the shepherds, and the Gentiles, the Magi. It's, it's, it's widely accepted that Matthew's gospel is written particularly to a Jewish audience, um, which makes it all the more noteworthy that he would start by talking about the Magi, because there would have been a reaction to this. And that's how he starts. So again, why does he do that? Why does God do it like this? Why does God do it like this? What's more shocking, though, than who the Magi are and the fact that they came at all to worship Jesus, what's more shocking than that is how they show up and how God brings them into the picture. All we know from the, from the biblical account is that they followed a star, they show up to Herod's palace and they're like, where is he? We saw his star and we followed him here. And then after Herod does some, some juke in a little bit, they leave again and it, it just says they saw the star again and they followed it to the house where Jesus was. That's all they're going by is a star. And what is astonishing about that is that God leads them to Jesus through astrological stargazing, which is the exact thing that would have had them condemned in the Old Covenant law. The very thing that is a barrier God uses to bring them into the presence of his son. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It might be easy for us to get hung up on this and think like, wait a minute, they're just following some like magical star? Like, that's crazy. That, there's no way that could be true. And what I want to say is that that is tertiary at best. That doesn't really matter here. What really matters in this story is what this tells us about God. Because I think it does tell us about God. The story, the story of the Magi and the shepherds, it tells us something about God. Because with the Magi... God was moving to bring those that were far near. So again, why does, why does he do it like this? What's the point? This is a peculiar way that God would go about announcing his, his son's coming. So why? Why does he reveal himself to the shepherds like that? Why is it shepherds at all? Why does he invite the magi? included. I think he does this to show us something about himself. Namely, that he is near, he is humble, he is gentle, kind, and accessible to people that otherwise may not feel that they have access. God is showing himself to be accessible in these stories. Between the Magi and the shepherd, you have 
two remarkably different groups of people. And I hope I flushed that out a little bit. These are two remarkably different groups of people. Jew and Gentile. Educated, uneducated. Social outcast, social elite. Blue collar, white collar. Pious, heathen. Whatever other qualifiers you want to put on it. These are two dramatically different groups of people. And yet... They are united in joy over the baby Jesus. How does that happen? What was it about this situation that brought these two different groups of people to be united in joy? Because when the angels told the shepherds, I bring great news that is going to be for joy for all the people. They met all the people. And we see that. We see that clearly here. Was it like a change in circumstances that would have brought them joy? Were they thinking everything's going to be different now? Things are going to change now? Not really, because the Magi just go home after this happens. They see Jesus, they give him his gifts, they worship, and then they just leave. They go home. And as far as we can tell, I guess the shepherds just go back to work. And Jesus is a baby, right? Like, he's just crying. He's not, you know, he's not doing anything yet. He's just a baby. It'd be 30 years until he began his ministry, and even then, it didn't come necessarily with a, what we would consider a revolution or a change in circumstances. So why were these people so filled with joy? Why does God do it like this? I think that it has something to do with that the Magi and the shepherds saw that God had come to be with them personally, as as a person. God had come to be with them, Emmanuel, God with us. Gone were the days of trying to get to God because in Jesus, God had come to be with them. And with us. When the shepherds were told, like I said earlier, when the shepherds were told that good news, joy for all people, they might have thought, all people, that, that includes me. Me, the lowly, the forgotten. God came for me. God came for us. When the Magi, it says, in, it says in the account that when the Magi saw the star resting over where Jesus was, they were filled with joy, exceeding joy. Maybe when they saw the star, they thought, look, God Most High is here and has come to be with us. We who are not his people, he has come to be with us. I think these stories show us that we have a personal God. And that's the glory of the incarnation. God became a man to be among us, to walk with us, to know, to understand, to do what we cannot, make a way for us to be with him. 
We, we, we've all, we all know about, you know, Christians love to talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? We, love, we love that kind of language. I think in these stories, God is showing that he has come to have a personal relationship with us first. We're going to go a little bit into the New Testament here. I'm going to show you a verse out of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest, this is describing Jesus, we do not have a high priest that is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one that has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And I've drawn attention to that word empathize. Um, Other translations use different words. Some translations say sympathize. Um, The NLT says a, a high priest that understands our experience. The message says a God who is not out of touch with us. I'm trying to draw out from the stories of the Magi and the shepherds the tenderness, the compassion, the gentleness, and the kindness of God to come as a man to sympathize, to understand. Because in in these stories, like I said, you have two remarkably different groups of people here, and they're both united in joy over Jesus. We're seeing Jesus' ability to empathize even before he's spoken a word. Because these are two different people, and they are united over him. I think they are drawn to a relationship with a personal God that had made himself near Um, I don't know about you, but when I, when I think about Jesus, when we describe Jesus, we probably don't use the word empathetic to describe him that much. But this is exactly how he's described. Because he came as a human being, he can empathize, he's empathetic, and he, that is how he's described. That falls right in line with how uh, Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11, I don't have a slide for this. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'm sure it's a familiar passage for much of us. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble. Or some translations say gentle and lowly. What's peculiar about that is that this, this would appear to be the only place in the Gospels that Jesus like, describes his personality. Jesus says a lot of things about who he is, like his identity, his mission, how we should see him. But here in Matthew 11, we see him telling us about what kind of a person he is. What are the fundamental characteristics of, that dwell in his heart? And he says, gentle, lowly, humble, able to empathize. Let me show you this quote. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. That's our God. That's God most high. 
approachable and accessible in the person of Jesus. Um, in my job, I, I talk to teenagers all day, and they talk to me about a lot of things. And sometimes when they're having like challenges or problems uh, with their family or with their parents or with a teacher or with a friend or whatever it is, if they're ever at some, some kind of like social conflict, the thing that I hear students say more often than anything else is they just don't understand. They just don't understand me. They just don't listen to me. They don't know me. They don't know what I'm going through. They don't understand. It would seem like, it would appear that a great hindrance to relationship, or perhaps the primary influence or hindrance to relationship, is a lack of understanding. Do you see that we have a God who understands? who is able to empathize. Because he came as a man. Came as a human. This is what we celebrate. The incarnation, the coming of God to be among us. God most high made himself low. He's a baby. He entered into the mess of humanity to redeem it, because we can't, but he can. So just, just consider this. Like, Jesus was a baby. He had to get swaddled. <laughs> he had to get fed. He had to get changed. I, I don't know if they, I don't know what they did for, like, diaper stuff back then, but whatever. He had, whatever it was, he had to have it done to him by his parents. Um, he was a toddler. I have a toddler right now. It's It's crazy. <laughs> Uh, he was that, and everything that goes along with that. He was a child. He had to learn. He was a teenager. He experienced everything that is encapsulated in saying the word teenager, right? He was a man. He got mad. He got angry. He got sad. He experienced disappointment. He got stressed out. He got tired. He experienced relationship. And he experienced broken relationship. He experienced pain. A lot of pain. Of all kinds. Isaiah 53 is a, is a well-known uh, messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And in that chapter, Isaiah describes Jesus using a lot of uh, descriptors, but one thing that Isaiah describes Jesus as is a man acquainted with suffering. That's our God. That's God most high. Made himself a man acquainted with suffering. And because of this, he can relate. He can relate to us as we struggle through those same experiences. What's more is that he did it in total perfection. 
way we cannot. And on the cross, he exchanged his perfection for our imperfection and everything that was coming to that. This is our joy. This is joy. The nearness of God, the victory of Jesus, free gift of righteousness and forgiveness and redemption in his blood. And this, this idea of the incarnation, um, God becoming a human being in Jesus, is a fundamental tenet of, of Christian theology. And if you would allow me to paint with a broad brush here for a moment, I think there's three reactions that people can typically have to, to this idea of God becoming a human. Two of them are reactions of offense, and one of them is not. So the first one that is a reaction of offense this would be one that many other world religions carry. Um, many people react to the idea of the incarnation with offense by saying that God is too high to make himself low as a human. Like the idea of God becoming a human paints him in a, like a dirty, um, a dirty light. And he's too high for that. So some people have that kind of response. Like he's, God would not do that. Um, that, that. That idea carries offense. For, for many people. The second response of offense would be maybe one that is a little more common in, in, our, in our culture, if not more subtle. Um, some take offense to the idea of God becoming a human, not because they're thinking about God, but more so because they're thinking about themselves. And what I mean by that is if God became a human and is capable of relationship, well, that means that he can get in your business like any other human can. Like he has a voice in your life and he is near. And some people would rather him be at arm's length. Like we, some people want the pie in the sky that you just ask favors for, but they don't want relationship. They don't want the give and take of a relationship. And that might be a more common response to this idea in our culture. Indeed, even maybe perhaps in the church, people might have this, this idea. So I said three reactions, two of offense and one is not. Those are the two of offense. The one that is not of offense, um, I think, is the reaction that we see from, from the Magi and the shepherds, is that at the idea of God becoming a human to be in relationship with us, you would be absolutely melted, absolutely undone, filled with joy at the humility the grace and the kindness of God to make himself low to be with us so that we could be with him. It's a reaction of joy. I think we see the Magi and the shepherds reacting like that with joy. We're talking about, um, we're talking about a story of Jesus and his power to elicit this kind of response in people when he's a baby, right? Right? I want to look at another story here later uh, in the Gospels. We'll fast forward in Jesus' life a little bit. We'll look at another story um, when I think about Jesus coming as a person and being capable of empathy and connection. Um, I, think of, I think of this story. So I don't have a slide for it. Um, I don't have a slide for it. If you, have your, if you have your Bibles, you can jump to Luke chapter 7. 
I'm going to read a story in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. I'm going to read it through to the end. It's kind of a long stretch of scripture, but I want to. I want, I want to read it because it's a powerful story. And this story in and of itself could have many sermons preached on this story. Um, I'm just going to say a couple of things out of this story. Some of us might be familiar with it, but I'll start reading in Luke 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Right away, oftentimes we think about Jesus like duking it out with the Pharisees. He's going to this guy's house. He invited him for dinner and he's going. And sharing a meal with each other was a really intimate thing at this time. And Jesus is doing that with a Pharisee. He is gentle. He's accessible. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, but he didn't ask him anything. Did you catch that? He He didn't even say that. He said that to himself, but Jesus answered him. Fully God. Fully God. And yet fully man. And his humanity did not come at the expense of his divinity. Paul says in Colossians that the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form in Jesus. That he is the visible image of the invisible God. He is fully God as he sits in the presence of these people as a human being. Jesus answered him, though he didn't ask him any question. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned, he turned toward the woman. We're going to focus on that. He turns toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So like I said, there's many, many, many things that could be said about this story. I just want to say a few. Um, people get all bent up when he says, your sins are forgiven. That was because, that was essentially him saying, I am God. Let there be no doubt. I am him. I am. I have the power to forgive this woman's sin, and I will do it. It was massively offensive. They thought only God can forgive sins. 
So for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, he is saying, let there be no doubt. I am God among you. And I think what's interesting is that the, Simon, the Pharisee, has a response typical of like the second matter of offense that I, that I discussed earlier. Because when Jesus asks him, do you see the woman? Do you see this woman? Well, of course he sees her. Of course the Pharisee sees her. And he's appalled. He is appalled at what he is seeing. Because Jesus is letting her touch him. He would rather he, that he be at arm's length. Right? Simon isn't in for the relationship here. But Jesus has come to be accessible and he is sitting with this woman. And when it says he turned towards the woman, I just, I just picture this. Jesus, like, he has like a body language. He positions himself towards her. He approaches her as a human being, as he is a human being himself. And yet still fully God. So when Jesus asked this question, do you see the woman? I think it's perhaps rather rhetorical because like I said, of course he sees her and we know what his reaction is. So when Jesus is asking this question, do you see this woman? I think that really what he is trying to communicate is that I see this woman. I see her. I will position myself towards her. I am accessible. He sees the woman just like he saw the Magi, just like he saw the shepherds, just like he would see the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the lepers, just like he sees Simon the Pharisee in this story, just like he sees me, and just like he sees you. And this is our God, and this is our joy. Um, the last, last two years in my life have been marked with a lot of change. Um, I had a career change, I became a dad, and I'm experiencing all the, all the highs and lows in that. I think I've, I've experienced life's greatest joys, and I've experienced frustration and anxiety, um, and, and being overwhelmed and hope deferred. And as I get to experience more life, I am astonished and comforted and filled with joy in greater degrees about this aspect of God's character and who Jesus Christ is, that he is gentle, that he is empathetic, because he came and dwelt among us and is ready for a relationship today. I need Jesus to be, and I need to remind myself that he is, mighty God, absolutely mighty God, and yet, wonderful counselor. I need him to be both. 
And he is. He is. This is what we celebrate. This is our joy. I'm going to pray. Um, when I'm done praying, there's going to be a bunch of kids behind me. In the first service, they just like showed up. It was great. I knew they were coming, but I didn't tell everybody beforehand, so I finished praying, and behold, <laughs> here they are. So I'm going to pray, and then there's going to be a bunch of kids here, and it's going to be great. It's going to be fun. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your humility. Thank you that you became flesh and that you dwelt among us. Thank you for your character, who you are. Lord, thank you that you did not leave your divinity, but that you are a mighty God and wonderful counselor. You are our joy, Lord. Um, we thank you for your blood and that we can be with you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.